We'll turn to Mark chapter 14. We'll read it together. Uh, somebody read verses 1 through 2, and we'll get started in earnest. It was two days before the Passover of the festival of unleavened bread. <clears throat> the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. All right, verses 3 through 9, somebody else. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages, and the money given to the poor, and they refused her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Okay, so let's talk about the, this secret plot, uh, the plot to kill Jesus, the plotting in secret. It says in verse 1, it was two days before the Passover. Now, I think it is helpful. Um, I wish somebody would have done something like this for me when I was a young man. I want to show you when the three major festivals are. You can see the three major festivals. What are they? Well, I got it up there, so you, I'm sort of taking the mystery out of it. There's this one, which is called the, Fest the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it falls mid-March to mid-April. And that's why Passover, or Easter for us, is always somewhere between mid-March and usually early April, but sometimes mid-April. Uh, exactly 50 days after what's called the Sabbath of Unleavened Bread is the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths. It depends, it depends on the depends on the translation. You might say Tabernacles. Um, Oh, I have the wrong thing written down there. I've got Feast of Booths both times. <laughs> yep, that's a mistake on my part. Darn it. Demerit. Huh? Demerit, right. Cut that from my page. Um, <laughs> well, let's, let's settle it real quick. Turn to Leviticus 23. If you, if you want the dates for this, you can find them all. In Leviticus 23, it says in verse 4, it talks about the Passover. It says, the first day you shall have a holy convocation. That's the Holy Sabbath I was talking about. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then uh, you go down a little bit. It talks about the Feast of First Fruits. Ah, that's it. So 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the Feast of First Fruits. Uh, or sometimes called the Feast of Harvest. And then later in the month of Tishri, you have the Feast of Booths, sometimes called the Feast of Weeks, Feast of Tabernacles. And, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on what they were. I just wanted you to get an idea, even though I had to screw up one thing at least, of uh, you know wh what time of year it was. So what time of year was this? Oh, sometime between the, Actually, we, we know exactly pretty much based on other events. What was going on? So Jesus died, I mean, almost with certainty, on April the 3rd, 33 A.D. 
So if he died then, and the day before his death was Passover, right? Or maybe it was the same day. I can't recall right now. I know he celebrated it the night before. But the night before, actually, at sunset, the next day begins, right? So I think Jesus died either on Passover or the day before Passover, whatever the case may be. This was probably April 1st to us, somewhere around that range, right? Because this is, it says in verse 1, two days before the Passover. And he died, right? Right at that time. So we're early April, maybe very late March. Now let's talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread just for a second. Um, like I said, like I showed you, it was held in the month of Abib, uh, sometimes called Nisan. You, you ever wondered when you're reading the Bible, why does it say Abib sometimes and why does it say Nisan in the Old Testament? You ever wondered that? No? Am I the only nerd in here? <laughs> Abib is Hebrew, and Nisan is what the month names were changed to when they went to Babylon for 70 years. A lot of their words changed. They took on, they, in fact, they stopped speaking Hebrew. They started speaking another language. What was it? Greek. Not Greek, not yet. Aramaic. Greek came. No. Hebrew is what they spoke until they went to Babylon. Then they started picking up Aramaic to the point where basically all they spoke. Now, this is a really dumb question, but this is all after the Mayan calendar, correct? I don't know much about the Mayan calendar. I'll be honest with you. Isn't that what we use currently now? We use a we use a calendar called the uh, Gregorian calendar. But wasn't that a derivative mm -hmm. off of the Mayan calendar? Mm -hmm. Gregorian calendar is based on uh, well, it's called Gregorian because it has to do with Pope Gregory, and he would not have even known who the Mayans were. So, so I don't know. I don't know. But that would, have, if it was a pope that used the calendar we have, that would have been after Jesus, correct? Yeah. yeah. Right. Think about it. Jesus didn't. I mean, they they structured so, I mean, their year differently. Listen, their year back then could have been two months. Well, like, you remember when I showed you the? Let me go back to this one. Um, where the month Tishri also includes the the Jewish uh, New Year. Their New Year. Started in like October. Ours begins January first. So I mean, it's just different cultures, different ways of. We're we're so worldwide now on how we keep time and kind of we, we all keep the same calendar. Right. But that's not the way it used to be. And this is why when trying to figure out dates in the Old Testament, it gets very confusing because sometimes they're using a Hebrew calendar. Sometimes they're or and when I say Hebrew calendar, usually what they would do is they would figure dates based on who was in charge, who the kings were. Right. Well, what if there's no Hebrew king? Well, then you go based on the Babylonian king, and it just it gets mixed up. But uh, anyway, here we are in the month Abib, mid-March to mid-April. This happened to be very early April. We know that because we know when Jesus died. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was actually, early on, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were two separate things. Y'all know what Passover was, right? I don't need to go all the way back to the book of Exodus, do I? Passover inaugurated the night that God delivered them from Egypt, uh, the night of the tenth plague. And um, and it was called, the, the festival after that, which lasted seven days, was called the Feast of 
unleavened bread because um, it, it not only commemorated that miraculous event, but they ate, you know, you, you go all the way back to the actual deliverance from Egypt and they ate unleavened bread because that was God's way of symbolizing you're going to be delivered so fast today, like literally today, you're going to be delivered so fast your bread won't even have time to rise. And that's why um, for seven days uh, they had this feast of unleavened bread. And so um, honorable Jews, there were dishonorable Jews, right? But honorable Jews, including jo Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they took these festivals, <coughs> excuse me, very seriously. You remember when Jesus goes to the temple at age 12 with Joseph and Mary, and they leave with the rest of the family, and they, he gets left behind, and, um, and where is he? Where is he? Well, they had gone to one of these festivals. And we see Jesus later in John chapter 2, going to the festivals, going to the Passover's. Um, now it says by stealth they were seeking to kill him for they said not during the feast let's not do this in other words they had resolved in their minds we're going to kill him and we want it to be a secret in other words we don't want everybody to find out now why did they say lest there be an uproar uh, well first of all let's talk about who these people who these bad guys are it says the chief priests and the scribes um, who is, if you had to, to say, who is the chief priest, what would you say? There's one. If you had to pick one, who would it be? Say it. No. Well, not, not, not today. Back then. Back then. There was one guy, remember, that could do special things that nobody else could do. He was a high priest. That's right. And so, have you ever wondered, why is there a, an S on the end of chief priest? S, chief priests. So who are these other chief priests? Well, if you go all the way back to Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you've got the high priest, Aaron and his descendants, and then you've got other priests, but there is no mention of chief priests in the Old Testament. So the best, you know, I can figure and other theologians can figure is that this is sort of a political class of priests that grew up. And does that surprise you at all? Look at how politically connected and and concerned these guys are. They are all about power, right? That, that's the whole reason they want to kill Jesus. Now the chief priest, now in this case it would have been uh, Annas and Caiaphas, uh, they would have been one of the chief. They would have been the chief priest of the chief priests. But anyway. Who do you think in today's time would be the closest person? Well, there isn't one. To those people, though. It would depend on your religion. To the Catholics, it would be the Pope. To the Protestants, don't have one. I mean, <laughs> you, uh, Protestants maybe usually used to would have said Billy Graham, maybe America's pastor and all that, but there is no. Uh, I don't think he'd fit there. Depends on if you if you're if you're Orthodox. The, the the Russian Orthodox Church has their Pope. They don't call him Pope, but they, and each one has their own. Um, Mormons have a a senior elder. I, don't, I forget what they call him, but. No, he's dead. I mean today. <laughs> John Smith Jr. <laughs> you saying each one in procession takes a name John Smith? They'd be like, like the 18th by now or something. John Smith. <laughs> I don't know. But, but, but these chief priests and scribes, and it says, it uses this word by stealth. Uh, that's an interesting word. I looked up every other place it's used in the New Testament. 
and it's always meant to deceive for treacherous purposes. Um, for example, in Matthew 26, verse 4, the same exact word, I don't know why it's translated differently by the translators of our English translations, but it says, they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way, treacherously. And in Acts 13, um, Peter says to Simon the magician, you are full of deceit and trickery. So they were, they didn't, were they, were they here the chief priests, supposed to be followers and lovers of God, they do not care about ethics, do they? And that's a sad state of affairs. And, and, uh, but that, that's exactly what was going on. Now I said there, you can see this note. Um, it says, lest there be an uproar from the people. Uh, it's estimated that at that time, Jerusalem usually had a population of about 30,000, and they generally had about 180,000 um, during these three major festivals. You had five times the number, and there is, there's already a lot of tension in the air, right? Anytime, think about it, where's everybody going to stay? You crawl on top of each other, you're uh, probably, the evidence is they would build tent cities outside, and you know, you don't have your normal accommodations. Jesus, we know, he wasn't staying in Jerusalem. What was he doing? Every night he was going back to Bethany, where Lazarus and Mary and Martha stayed. He walked a couple of miles into Jerusalem every single day. Um, this is a highly combustible atmosphere. You had that going on, plus you had the Romans there. Oh, man. They necessarily didn't get along with everybody. They just tried to keep peace between Not them. only that, but you remember... Uh, there's a political class that wants to create chaos and unrest. What are they called? Of Jews. Who remembers what they're called? Simon the Zealots. Zealots. That's right. If they're going to try to cause trouble, when do you think they're going to do it? When there's 150,000 extra people running around. I mean, it's a lot easier to get away with something when there's five times the population. Well, that's right. Think about Think about if you if you committed a if you committed a crime when there's a hundred thousand people in the crowd versus a thousand, you're more likely to get away with it at that time. So they they did they wanted to kill Jesus, but they did not want to cause a revolt because if they cause a revolt, the Romans come down like a hammer. So I made some applications. Um, don't be a schemer. Don't be a schemer. We, I, I think it's easy for us to look askance at these chief priests and scribes because we would never kill Jesus. Uh, that's probably true. We're, we're Christians. We, I would hope we would never kill Jesus. But I want to look at their devices. Um, I remember one of my, of course I have a lot of favorite lines from The Dark Knight. It's one of my, it's a good movie. But the Joker, uh, after Harvey Dent has his accident, he says, He's talking about the mob and, and uh, cops and Commissioner Gordon. He says, they're schemers. They're all trying to control their little worlds. And that's what scheming is. It's an attempt to control something that you, by all rights, do not really have control over. How do we do that? How does this happen in the church? How, how does this happen in the church? What does scheming look like in your family, in the church? Secretly trying to get something to go your way. Okay. 
But maybe not even trying to be not trying to be malicious about it, but just trying to push your agenda. Right. So let's say let's say there's something about Matt I don't like. Right? You don't have to <laughs> This is like, I need counseling right after this. Okay, yes, but let me let me show you a way that I think he goes. I, there's something about Matt I don't like. There's something he's doing at his shop uh, I don't care for. I'm the pastor, and he's got some kind of, he's got some, uh, he's got some display up that I don't think is Christian. That, that's not true, by the way. But anyway. And so, and so instead of me being a man, just going to Matt and saying, Matt, listen. I got a concern about something, and I want to share it with you. I'm not telling you what to do, but this is my concern. I go to Jesse, uh, his right-hand man, or Cammy. And I don't like that sign very much. It means very Christian. Why? Why would Matt do that? I think I think you need to ask him to change that. Now, there's an above-board way to handle differences. And there's a schemer's way to handle differences. And uh, it's like the joke said, we, we try to control everything. Not everybody, some of us. And uh, schemers, like these people, work in the shadows in order to control. And we don't want to do that. We would never do something as serious as this. But we still want to be above board. We want to be... Uh, well, we'll talk more about Galatians chapter 6 in just a second. But... Let's move on to the beautiful things of verses 3 through 9. Let's look, take a look at the facts of this story. Uh, it occurred in Bethany, which is a short walk from Jerusalem. Uh, we see, if you go back to chapter 11, I'm not asking you to do that, but that's where the uh, triumphal entry happens. We see that he's going back and forth uh, between Bethany and uh, Jerusalem. So he's just using Bethany as sort of a base of operations. And the dinner uh, was at the house of Simon the leper, it says. Now that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, do you think he was currently leprous? No. Or had he been a leper at some point in the past? Right, I mean, it says that not only Jesus was there, but other people were there. We know that because there's, it doesn't say who, even though we learned from Matthew, but there were some people in verse 4 uh, who are complaining, and the woman comes in, so there's at least uh, two or three other people plus the woman. Now, if you go over to Matthew chapter 26, we learn a few things. Uh, first of all, if you, if you go, in a very, we know this is the same story because chapter 26 verses 1 to have the same story about the plotting priests. It says uh, in verse 8, the disciples were indignant. So when it says uh, there were some in verse 4, you can just think to yourself, the disciples. Now this pure nard, what is that? Well, it's an ointment that was actually imported. They couldn't make it there in, in Israel. It was imported from India. And uh, it was very, that's what actually made it very costly. And you can see there, um, verse 5, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Now, uh, does anybody's translation say something different there? Rather than 300 denarii? A year's wage. And that's, a, that's more of an interpretation, but that's exactly right. 300 denarii 
is about what the average working man would have made in an entire year. Now, I don't know about you. That's a lot of money. <laughs> That's a lot of money for me. An entire year. And this is a woman now. Now, maybe she was a woman of means. Uh, it's hard to imagine. Like, where did she get it from? There's a lot that we don't know about this story. I like to think she stole it from the high priest. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just insert some yeah. drama into this, <laughs> right? Okay. David, there have been some speculation that she was the woman of Gerard. Really? Now that would be highly interesting. I hope we find out when we get to heaven. I kind of hope that's true. I, that, I would like to believe that. But we don't know. It's, it says she's unnamed. It, it doesn't say who she is. Now, um, she poured it over his head. Um... This was a sign of blessing. I would imagine that most of us here, or at least some of us, have the 23rd Psalm memorized, right? Remember what verse 5 says? You anoint with my head with oil. And then, but in typical Hebrew poetic fashion, this is a parallelism, right? The two sentences parallel each other. The very next phrase says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup, runs over. My cup overflows. I am blessed beyond measure. And so that's what it meant to be, to have your head uh, anointed with oil. We know that they would do that for the priests, for kings. They would anoint their heads with oil as a sign of God's blessing and a sign of his presence. And it says there are some indignantly uh, criticize that. Of course, that was the disciples. Now, I don't, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this next point, but I do want to mention something. Um, is there a contradiction? I want to show you something. If you could, can you do this? I was going to ask a question about it. Is this the same woman that's recorded in Luke 7? We're going to talk about that. So, in Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13, there's a story that sounds exactly like the one that we read in the book of Mark, chapter 14. Now, in Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, there is a story about a woman who anoints Jesus with oil. She also is criticized. And then, in John, chapter 12, there is a story about a woman. John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, about a woman anointing Jesus with oil. So, what is happening here? <laughs> well, in Matthew, it's pretty easy to tell. In other words, did this happen four times, three times, two times, or one time? If it's one time, then all four of the Gospels are presenting the same uh, historical account from four different perspectives. If it's two times, there's some bifurcation. If it's three times, then there's, you know, we have to figure this out. We don't have to, but uh, I don't, you know, when it comes to contradictions, I, I think that most of y'all in here are of the opinion, if I don't understand something, it is no, it's not going to bother, it's not going to keep me from going to bed at night. I trust God and there's just something there I don't understand. But not everybody's like that. Some people get really bothered by contradictions. And so I want to just talk about this for a minute. When you look at Matthew chapter 26, the 
Jesus being anointed is immediately preceded by the exact same story as we find in Mark, right? So can we at least conclude that Matthew and Mark are telling the same story? Yeah. Amen? Okay, so let's forget about Matthew for a second. What are the similarities? Well, in Mark and in Matthew, Simon is named as Simon the leper. In Luke, he is named in verse 36 as Simon, or actually he's called a Pharisee in verse 36, and then in verse 40, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. What chapter of Luke? Chapter 7. Oh, 7, okay. Did I? Uh, my apologies. So it's it's seven, up there on the screen, too. Okay. Simon 37, 36, 36. Now, in John chapter 12, well, let's, let's consider this first. Is it possible that Simon the Pharisee and Simon the leper are the same guy? It's possible. It's possible. Now, I've heard some people argue that a Pharisee could not be a leper. Well, that's ridiculous. Well, you can't just say that. What were the cultural... Uh, but you know, it's not like leprosy says, oh, he's a Pharisee, I can't get him, but I can get this person over here. No, but the point is, if you were leprous, you were with, you were with, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A call. You, you were isolated. A call, right. You, could, you were isolated, you yeah, were, there's a word. Uh, Forbidden. <laughs> worse than COVID. One person at a time. Matt. My question is, though, was he not speaking to his disciples this time? Was he what? Not speaking to his disciples this time. Was his son to have something to say to Like, was he private? Did he carry him off somewhere? Um, I don't know. It doesn't say that specifically, does it? So that's something that would be interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good That's a good question. I hadn't considered that. Um, where the plot really thickens is in John 12. Because uh, let's note a couple things. John 12, six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So where is he? Where is he in Mark? He's in Bethany. So check, check, right? Whose house is he at in John 12? Mary, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Whose house is he at in Mark? Simon the leper. How many days before the Passover in Mark? How many days before the Passover in John? Six. Plus, in Luke and John, she washes his feet and not anoints his head. Right. So let, let's just let's just talk through the 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 possible the possibilities uh, just real quick. If Mark, Matthew, Mark, and John are telling different stories, what is the problem with it? Is there a problem? Just to, don't think like a Christian for a second. Think like a skeptic. Okay. Think like think like a teenager who is looking for ways to pull at the threads of biblical inerrancy. What is, what's the problem here? There's a glaring one to me. That they're different stories. Yeah. The days, the time Okay, let me just put it this way. What is the likelihood? I'm not saying it's impossible, but what's the likelihood that almost this exact same incident happens four days apart 
with a lot of the same language, some of the same criticism, what's the likelihood of that? For the woman both times spending a year's wages within four days of each other, what's the likelihood of that? I'm not saying God that it didn't happen. I'm saying to me that seems kind of. I would rather think that they're the same event. That's what. Yeah, I'm, that's all I'm saying. They're probably the same event. But against that, I got to be honest. Against that is Simon the leper is not mentioned in John 12. Lazarus, Mary, Martha are not mentioned in Mark 14. It's called Bethany in, uh, well, it's called Bethany both times. One time it says six days in John, and one time it says two days in Mark. What are the ways, let's be creative. What are the ways that we could combine those stories and not have a logical inconsistency? Because one thing that I've heard people describe Christianity as taking a leap of faith, I reject that. Christianity is reasonable. It doesn't mean I can explain everything, but it's reasonable. I mean, you have to think these are four different people telling the same story from four different perspectives. That's true, but there's one author overriding all of that. Exactly. The Holy Spirit. So, follow me on this. What if this did happen two times? Luke records a separate example, which seems to be earlier in Jesus' ministry. If you read Luke 7, everything about it, it doesn't seem to be happening at the end of Jesus' life, which is where Matthew, Mark, and John are definitely happening, right? I mean, how many chapters are in Luke? There's like 24 or 26. Chapter 7? It's unlikely that that's at the end. That's more than likely at the beginning somewhere. So let's make an assumption that Luke is telling a story of one thing that happened. Matthew, Mark, and John are recording something different. On the timing, John says six days. What does it say? He. What does it say happened six days before Passover? Look at it. Be a critic. What happened six days before Passover? He came to Bethany. He came to Bethany. Does it say <coughs> that the supper was six days before Bethany? It doesn't. The disciples coming was when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Which was in chapter 11. The difference right here says then Mary took a pound of perfume and poured it on her and that and not. She's woman. named. She's named. named. So if it's the same story, then we know who the unnamed woman in Matthew and Mark is. So now not. we have three incidences that could happen. Well, that's right. It so could maybe, be three. So maybe and listen. it happened three times because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit need to be anointed. <laughs> that is a very spiritualistic understanding of it. Okay. <laughs> Um, here's the reality. If you went home and Googled this, you would find a lot of people that say, this happened three different times. Three different times. Twice in the last week of his life, within four days, Jesus was anointed with very costly nard, a year's wages worth. And I just find that hard to believe. Me personally. Maybe I'm too cynical. Maybe I'm too skeptical. But, what if this happens? He says six days before. So if we combine that with Mark 2, he arrives in Bethany six days before. He's going back and forth to Jerusalem. And two days before, he goes to somebody else's house for dinner. Still in Bethany. Does that make sense? Is that possible? Is it reasonable? Let me ask it that way. Is it unreasonable? 
you got to think like, an, like somebody that wants to destroy the Bible. And we're not used to that. We're just so trusting. Oh, man, that, this is great. I love it. But not everybody's like that. we got to think. And, 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 you know, like Matt said, is this the same woman from Luke? That's exactly what I thought. And when I started researching it, I thought, oh, no, i got to talk about this. <laughs> so let's continue. Um, I, I think what happened is, now, the other plot point that is a problem, and it is a problem we have to be honest about. John says it was at one person's house specifically, Lazarus's. Mark says it was at another person's house specifically, Simon the leper. While he was at, in fact, I wish I could just say they went out to dinner. But it says, in the house of Simon the leper. Oh, I can't get away from him. What's a way we could reconcile those two accounts? Brothers. Maybe they were staying together. Maybe they were related. Roommates. Maybe, maybe they were roommates. Any of y'all own rental properties? Is that your house or is that their house? If I, if, if I lived in a rental, in effect I do. I don't own the parsonage. But if I, if I wanted you to come over to dinner, would I say, why don't you come on over to the church's house for dinner? I wouldn't say that. I'd say, come over to my house for dinner. Is it at least reasonable to think, well, maybe Lazarus, who probably was not a rich man, uh, of course, maybe Simon the Leper wasn't either. Uh, we don't know. Maybe one of these was renting from the other. I don't know. I just, I just know, I find it more plausible. In other words, what's more plausible to David Morgan? What's more plausible to you? That Lazarus was renting from Simon the leper, or that Simon the leper was renting from Lazarus, or that two events of almost identical nature happened within four days of each other. Which one's more reasonable to you? The last one? That two, okay. that two events happened? And you have to decide for yourself. You have to decide for yourself. I personally don't find that reasonable, but that's why we're talking through it. Whatever... Here's the bottom line. Whatever you, whatever decision you come to, uh, you need to find logically consistent. I don't like, there are places in the Bible where I have to say, I don't understand that, and it doesn't matter because it's obviously true, and I just have to accept it by faith. But I would rather say, you know what, that makes sense to me because X, Y, and Z. That's just me. Um, let's talk for a second about we do have to move on. I think it's getting late. Oh, it is getting very late. Let's talk about... Uh, huh? Uh, I don't know. It's 6.57 by my watch. So let's talk about criticism. They asked... Uh, the, the disciples asked why was the ointment wasted. Here's a principle I just want to uh, leave you with. Focusing on why can lead to an ungrateful spirit. Um, focus on what God has done, on what God has done for you on what people do, instead of why things happen. I was talking with somebody earlier today, and I was reminding them that even Job, after he lost everything except for his wife and his life, he did not question God. He did not blame God. And uh, I, I think that that's very important for us. The second thing is, let's talk, these insincere questions. This could have been sold, given to the poor, and we learned from another gospel record that they didn't really mean that. 
Judas was the one driving this train. He wanted to put some in his pocket. You know what I think? I think criticism, when, when criticism is truly constructive, man, it's, it's, it's a welcome thing, isn't it? But it's hard to accept criticism when you think it's insincerity behind it. When you don't think the person really loves you, when, they're, when they don't have your best interest at heart, when they're just venting, when they got an ulterior motive like these people did, I think criticism often conceals sinful tendencies in the heart of the one criticizing. Here's an example. You shouldn't have done it that way. Reveals a controlling attitude in my heart. We could say that's just being critical, but why was I criticizing? It's because I want to control. They also, you know, they, they uh, criticized Jesus. He's a friend of sinners and gluttons and, and drunk, drunkards, they said. What do you think are the underlying sinful tendencies that might have been revealed by that criticism? Which was insincere, right? They didn't care that he was hanging out with them. They just wanted to look for a reason to criticize him. What, what about that criticism was re revealed to them. Maybe they were just jealous. They couldn't be like the sinners. <laughs> Maybe. I, I tend to go the other direction. Sense of self-righteousness. Yeah. Shouldn't be hanging out with people like that. Well, they You're better than that. They weren't ones to talk. They weren't by society standards. They were nothing to... But society viewed them as high priests. Or are you talking about the I, 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 was talking, I was talking about the disciples. Yeah. That's yeah. They wanted all of them. I think that's maybe what it was. What? That they wanted Jesus to take the Lord and Jealousy. I think that was the main one. Which is a form of control as well. I want everybody's attention on me. I, I want to make these applications and I think I'm basically done here. Um, you know, we should resolve to criticize only from a place of authenticity. Jesus said, um, he said, take the speck out of your brother's eye. But do something else first. What did he say? Take the huge honking log out of your own eye first. In other words, you don't even see clearly enough to help him. Be authentic. Um, be loving. And then uh, resolve to criticize only in order to help the one you're criticizing. Galatians 6.1 says, uh, Brethren, if anyone is overtaken in a fault, you who are uh, spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. In other words, don't, you know, a lot of times, well, let's be honest, 95% of criticism is from an attempt just to make myself feel better by running somebody else down. Whereas the Bible's model is, okay, it's not about you, it's about helping that person. And so we have to be authentic, loving, and um, helping. The other thing is, resolve to let most of the criticism roll off your back. I remember receiving a bit of advice once to take the duck, uh, the duck in water principle. When ducks go underwater and they pop back up, 95% of the water just right off their back. 5% little beads and stuff stays on there. He said, look, recognize that most criticism is not worth your time, and you should just let it roll right off your back. Don't, does a duck worry about the water rolling off his back? No, it's just, he just keeps on going. Um, and we should be the same way. There is 5% of the criticism that is legitimate, and we should take that to heart. Um, last one, and I know we got car practice. Oh, I just wanted to show you this real quick. 
We think of this as being the Last Supper, right? But they were more likely sitting like that. That's the way Romans ate. And when it says Jesus was reclining at table, this is what is meant. And that's how she could anoint his feet. Or head and feet. And another time it was his, it was his head. So when, when the woman did it on his head, she had to reach around, didn't she? <laughs> she had to do like that. But I just wanted to share that with you. Uh, just, just very quickly look at the beautiful thing that she did. Jesus said, after they criticized her, leave her alone. I want you to uh, imagine the next time somebody is criticizing you and you think it's insincere or it's not coming from a place of authenticity or love or help, just imagine Jesus up in heaven saying, leave him alone. That's my boy down there. That's my girl down there. You leave them alone. Because that's what he, that's his attitude. Leave them alone. And then just let it go. Don't worry about it. He said, you always have the poor. Uh, we were just a couple of days before his death and Jesus is just fine with drawing attention to his death. And here's my principle. We must draw attention to Jesus. Whatever our mercy ministries are, we took 125 meals uh, out to folks for Thanksgiving. That is a wonderful mercy ministry, taking food to people that might not can afford it, might uh, not have otherwise had a decent Thanksgiving meal. But uh, that's why we had a little card on the front that said something about the gospel, right? Because we must always be drawing attention to Jesus, even when... Uh, we're doing performing a ministry that's just of mercy or whatever because the poor are always going to be here uh, until they die. And then they go somewhere else. He said she has done what she could. Um, I, I used to think this and that. She couldn't do much else. This is all she could do. And then I realized, wait a minute. A year's worth of wages? This is a lot. Um, and so what does, what does he mean by she has done what she could? And I think the answer is she has done what she uniquely is able to do. How many people could afford a year's worth of costly nard and do it uh, for his burial? Uh, probably not many. The disciples certainly couldn't have. They couldn't even rub two pennies together to feed a couple, to feed a little boy. And I think it was a form of sacrifice on her part. It was. I think I had heard or read somewhere that she was saving that for possibly a wedding day or something like that. Like it was a very special ointment that she had. And the fact that she used it on him that's possible. Yeah. yeah, maybe. I mean, whatever it was, it was a huge sacrifice. You don't throw that kind of money down the drain unless you really um, have something in mind. The principle is this. God has gifted you to do certain things. And you need to figure out what those things are. We need to be teaching our young people. Be mindful of the way God has gifted you. You know, we got five kids. They're not all the same. They're going to have different gifts, abilities, strengths, weaknesses. Um... We need to be shepherding them towards using the things that they can do. She's done what she could to, uh, to worship the Lord. And she also left a legacy. Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached, it'll be done so. You know, we're going to remember her. If you want to leave a beautiful legacy, I love it. He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. I like that word picture. Uh, if you want to leave a beautiful legacy... Uh, you know, you probably won't be remembered all over the world, <laughs> but you can be remembered by those that you leave behind. Uh, serve the Lord. There's, I, I, I think I read it once that nobody ever gets to the end of their life and says, I wish I'd served Jesus less. There's lots of people say, I wish I'd have served him more. So I believe we're out of time. We are. We're, Amy's waiting on us. So let me pray in the room.